I want to talk with you today about what Christ built. And of course, people say, well, he built the church. Well, that's true. He did build the church. But I want to examine this a little, getting in preparation for some sermons that follow, and that is upon the people of God. I want to read this once again to you, and I want to go a little further. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This takes place at, towards the end of Christ's ministry. He goes from the Jews to Caesarea Philippi, and if you'll notice right up in the corner there, this is in the Old Testament, the city of Dan, and later Benias. Caesarea Philippi is there, and so he's going out of the territory of the Jews, and it's right up really, the Jordan River is the head pretty much there. And when you think about Caesarea Philippi, I think it's interesting, and Jesus to cho to chose this place for a particular reason. It was a worship of many gods. The main god there was a god called Pan. But they had many gods and they worshiped there and they would confess the name of their representative of those gods who was Caesar. And so they would come there and they would confess the name of Caesar. This is where Jesus chose that he was going to ask them who he was. They had sacrificed to their gods. And even if you go back in further history, they had even sacrificed children to their gods. They would confess the names of their gods and then confess Caesar as the representative of those gods. This is a picture today of this. And I want to explain this just a little bit. You can just see that this is a very powerful looking place. And strangely enough, this hole down in here is a place that's called the gates of hell. 
the gates of Hades. This is the gates of Hades. If you go in there, you're going you're gonna to not be able to come up. You're dead. And that's where they would sacrifice. Originally, the water came out of that, but an earthquake came and no water comes out of it. But I want you to notice something as we start this. There was a first question that these people asked. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Now I want you to get that Son of Man there because this is something that Jesus used more than any other title for himself. The Son of Man. And he said, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they started answering. Some say, you are John the, ba they're John the Baptist. Now, if you remember, as Herod looked at Jesus, he said, this must be John the Baptist that's come back to life. And he was scared to death because if you remember, he's the one that had him put to death. Elijah they said, and of course Malachi says that before the terrible and great day of the Lord comes, that Elijah is going to come. The disciples, when they saw Jesus transfigured, as they came down off of the mountain, they said, but Lord, we thought that Elijah was coming first. And Jesus said, well, Elijah has come and you didn't recognize him. And then they realized that it was John the Baptist that was Elijah. And then some said, well, it's Jeremiah. And the reason why is because Jeremiah was a preacher of judgment. And certainly the judgment was being preached about. A great terrible day of the Lord was coming. And they said, one of the prophets. And if you remember back in Genesis, he said that there was going to be a great prophet that arose and him you shall hear in everything. And that prophet was going to be a, a very powerful one. And if they didn't hear him, they would be cut off. Now Jesus is going to fulfill all of this. That they're thinking maybe this prophet is just like Moses. And so when they have all this together, Jesus then asked the second, second question. Who do you say that I am? And it was strange that Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to see that Jesus is making a contrast between what they are doing and what they are saying as to who he is. They are going to make a confession about him that is different than anything else. And they are saying that he has a power that the others do not. What does all this mean about the Son of Man? As I said, this is a term that Jesus used more than any other. This is a term that when he referred to himself, he said the Son of Man. And we have to go all the way back to Daniel, the second chapter, and chapter 7. In the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he had a dream. And in that dream, he, ha he 
saw something and he said to all his wise men, come and tell me what I dreamed. And all his wise men came and said, well, tell us what you dreamed and we'll tell you the interpretation. He said, no, you're the wise men. You tell me what I dreamed. Then I'll know you're all right. And they said, well, no man can do this. And they had a fellow by the name of Daniel over here and they said, you know, you ought to send for him. And so he came and he said, you know what? I can't interpret dreams, but I, my God can. So I'm going to tell you what you dream because God's telling me. He said, you saw a huge figure. Now I'm paraphrasing this. But you saw a huge figure. And that figure had a head of gold. And then... The breast and the arms were made out of silver. And the mid-belly and the thigh were brass. And the legs of iron. And the toes were divided with iron and clay. And he says, yeah, that's what I dreamed. He will give the interpretation. But then in Daniel 7, he saw another form, another dream. And all of a sudden, here came this fierce lion. And then a bear appeared. And then a leopard. And then a fierce beast. And then a stone cut out without hands. A judgment and a new figure appears a stone. Here is roughly what he saw. If you will notice, over on the left, there's Daniel 2, and there's what he looked at. That's a fierce-looking thing when you think about it, and it's a powerful-looking thing. And then in Daniel 7, you see the lion and the bear and the leopard and so on. And what he is saying is, you, king, are the, Babylon is the head of gold. You're it, Nebuchadnezzar. And your kingdom rules over the whole world. And after you is going to come another. And that silver represents Medo-Persia by Darius who reigned and ruled and took over everything. And after that, there's going to be another one that's of brass, and this is Greece. It's like a leopard because it moves so fast. And here is Alexander the Great who took over the world, and at a young age, he sat down and cried because there was no more countries to overtake. Then, this terrible, terrible divided kingdom or Rome, Rome shows up and it's an ugly, ugly beast. And then you have iron and clay that Rome was divided into 10 Titanic tribes. And then you have a stone cut out without hands. Judgment takes place that is going to completely destroy this whole figure. And that is the kingdom of Christ. Now we've interpreted the dream. 
And I want to talk with you about that. Over in Daniel, the seventh chapter, verse 13 and 14, and I know that we're moving a little deeper than we usually move, but I want you to see this and understand it. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, notice that, son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now get the picture here. What happened when Jesus arose from the dead, met with his apostles, and then, do you remember, he was taken up in the clouds of heaven. And where was he going? He was going back to the Father, the Ancient of Days. And there a kingdom was going to be given to him. And that kingdom was going to be powerful. It would be able to destroy this great image that we saw. It would be able to destroy all of the rule of these others. And he was going to be one that had everything in his control. And that's exactly what happened when Christ went back to heaven. Our question today is, who is the Son of Man? Or that's what Peter's question was. And God answers this very simply when he says, Christ, the Son of God. Now there's our, our focus today. Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember what led up to this? Jesus said, you are Peter. And I've heard preachers preach, and I even picked it up one time, that Peter meant that he was a little bitty stone. But if you study the word Peter there, it is a big rock. In fact, it's a boulder. And you know what? A boulder, you can roll just about anywhere you want to. But Jesus said, this is not what I'm building on. You will be a spokesman for the cleft, for that big picture that we saw. You will be a small part of the foundation rock. So, not the foundation rock. We're going to look at the foundation rock. When we say the apostles in Ephesians 2.20, he says, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, how are they a part of the foundation? Well, they're the ones that are going to give the message. They're the ones that are going to tell what it is. People, in fact, do you remember in the first Whenever the first gospel sermon was preached and they became one as they obeyed the gospel, do you remember what he said? 
he said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We've got a foundation here that we're building upon. That foundation is the doctrine. These fellows are giving this. The apostles are giving it. The prophets are giving it. That that foundation is a part of the main foundation, and that main foundation does not need to be confused. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says if you're going to build, you build upon Christ. For no other foundation can you lay. Jesus Christ is the only foundation that's going to stand. In Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. You remember, he's the cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not in haste. Now this foundation is tested, but it's also one that's going to cause confusion. Notice what he says. In Isaiah 8, 14, and I'm moving fairly fast because I want to get to the point. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he says, this is going to be the stumbling block. Why is Jesus such a stumbling block to people? Why can't people see Jesus as the one? Because there's something that happened to Jesus that is contrary to what everybody can understand. And that is, the Bible says that anybody that hangs upon a tree is cursed. And our Savior could not be cursed by God. But he was. And they can't get over that stumbling block. He cannot be the Savior. Why? Because he hung upon a cross. Well, Jesus said that is the very power of the gospel, is that cross. In Romans 9.33, it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling block, stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then in 1 Peter 2 and verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do so. So our question today is what did Christ build? I said all that to get to now what we're going to talk about. Here's the first question that I want to ask. We say he built the church, but what is the church? Is it an institution? Hmm? I'm just asking that question. Is the church an institution? Does anybody know? John, is it an institution? No. Is it some kind of a physical building? No. He built people. 
People want to know what's wrong with the Catholic Church. Well, it's an institution. And that institution stands between Christ and God. You remember what God said? He said, there is one mediator between God and man, that man, Christ Jesus. Not an institution, not an organization. Each man can go to God. Each man can be right there with God. Each man has the ability to be in the presence of God if that individual is insincere, number one, and two, that he is a child of God or wanting to become a child of God. If we can get in our mind that we're talking about people, in fact, it's lively stones that are built together into a temple of God. He built people. Upon this rock I will build my people is what he's saying. It's my group of people. Now this is very important because it changes all of the structure of how people look at the church. How did he build it? Well, it tells us, pay careful attention, Acts 20 and 28, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Did he purchase an institution? Did he purchase an organization? Did he purchase some kind of a building? Or did he purchase people? That's what I want us to remember. He purchased a bunch of people. Who gives us the, our authority? Jesus Christ. Who tells us what to do? He is the head of the church. How do we talk with God? Personally, through his son, Jesus Christ. We take away man that stands in opposition or between man and God and we just simply say there is only one that I have to go through and that is Jesus Christ to give to God. Does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense, then it would be nonsensical. When you reach the blood, you are on the foundation rock. You get that? When I reach the blood, I'm on the foundation rock. We come from the pawn ship of Satan to the rock, to the foundation. What is that foundation? It's the confession of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you take that away, the whole thing crumbles. What is the church? Think about it. And I want to suggest this, and I want you to understand it. It is the restoration of all nations in relationship with God. That's what it is. It is the relationship with God that is restored from the original back to where we're supposed to be. One of the things that you will notice, and if you really study the Bible, is what God is doing when he establishes the church is he is restoring that which was original, that relationship with God, restoring that back to where people have that 
relationship with God that they're supposed to have. What Christ is doing as he goes back is something important that we will talk about in just a second. And that restoration is from the past, the present, and the future. This is what the church is. If we can keep that in mind, we have come a long way. And then the gates of Hades equals death. Once you got into death, you couldn't escape it. In Caesar's kingdom, when you died, you were no longer in Caesar's kingdom. When Caesar died, he no longer had a kingdom. They couldn't overcome death. And Jesus says very simply, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When I'm going to confess Christ, does that mean that I'm not going to die? Yes. When I confess Caesar, does that mean I'm not going to die? No. So he is saying, I want you to see what I'm doing. I am building something that overcomes the greatest enemy that you have, and that is death. The resurrection of Christ proves that the resurrection can take place for eternity, and he says you can be a part of that, and he is building a brand new world whenever Christ dies and goes back to heaven. He is doing that. What does it mean as Peter tries to get in the way? Do you remember what Jesus pointed out in Mark 8, 31? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now Jesus says this over and over. But Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to die. I won't let you die. I will stand there and I will defend you. Now here's the guy that says he's going to defend him and then forsakes him. But Jesus said, you're not listening to God. Now if you don't listen to God, you're listening to somebody else. Right? He says, you're not going to stand in the way. Peter had just confessed, you are the son of God, but we're not going to do what God said you were going to do and what you prophesied you were going to do. We're not going to allow that happen. And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan had filled the heart that quick. And isn't that true with us many times? Satan filled the heart that quick and he's contradicting God. And if Jesus does not die, Satan wins. But he says, I'm going to accomplish it. What does it mean to stand on the rock? Well, verse 22, 24. Then Jesus told his disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's the question. Can you be a disciple of Christ if you do not deny yourself? And the answer is no. 
Denying yourself means that I put myself out of the way. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. Now we're down to the personal. That I am way down the ladder. That he is at the top. That I love him more than I love me. I obey him more than I will obey me. That I will do what he says because he is more important than I. And even that, if I deny myself, then I'm going to serve his people and serve those out there that want to become his people. Take up your cross. Do you realize what that means? It means that it's going to hurt every day. Paul said, I buffet my body daily. Every day it's going to hurt you. To be a Christian because you are denying yourself, you're putting yourself to death, you have your own cross, and you are saying every day, it's no longer I that live, but that Christ lives in me. This is what I'm to portray. And then he said, follow me. What does that mean? Well, it means get the same attitude he had about God, it means that I'm going to approach things, my enemies, the way he approached them. It means that I'm going to love the way he loves. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I'm overcoming a lot. I want you to see something as we start towards the end of this. Because I'm not going to preach a long sermon today, but... What did God build for David and others? If you remember, if you went back to 2 Samuel, David lived in luxury. He lived in a cedar house. And he said, you know, it's not right for me to live in a cedar house and God's living out there in a tent. I want to build a house for him. And God said, what kind of a house are you going to build for me? Even the heavens can't contain me. He said, my dwelling place is in the tent, meaning that his representation was there. But he said, you can't build a house that's big enough to hold me. But he says to David, I'm going to do something for you. Now watch it. In 2 Samuel 7, 27, 28, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Do you get that? Not David's going to build him a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house. You following that? Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. 
David is going to receive a house. And may I suggest that every one of us receive that house. The house that God builds. Follow me here. What house did he build? Jesus said when he was ready to leave, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, to have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I'm going to prepare a place for you. What place was he going to prepare? A house. A house for who? A house for David. A house for John. A house for Don. A house for every one of us. What was he going to build? That hadn't been built before. 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, himself, behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church could not come into existence unless Jesus died, went back to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and this is the building of the church. What did Christ build when he went back to heaven? Did he build an institution? Did he build an organization? Or did he build a people called the church? That's what Jesus is building, is his bunch of people. That's what we're going to be talking about, is the bunch of people that Jesus built. And how grand it is to have him as the head of that church, directing the members of that body taking away anybody between him and God and the Holy Spirit directing these men to preach to where this foundation is laid firmly in people's hearts. Question is, are you standing on the rock? Have you overcome death? Have you reached the blood of Christ? In Romans 6, 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Where did he shed his blood? He shed his blood in his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the new birth. That's the new birth into Christ. Birth into Christ is birth into the church. The church is his people. The church is the body of Christ. Therefore, when you obey the gospel, you come into Christ. How do you stay there? By being faithful. Now, if you're here today and haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, do you believe that God loves you, sent his son to die for you upon the cross of Calvary, and that you are going to confess him as the Lord because you believe with all your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, Repent of your sins and let him take charge of your life and be baptized as you enter into the death of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses you and you're raised to walk in the newness of life. Won't you come? All together we stand.